Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. It's such a pleasure to bring you this podcast, At The Mic, and it's something that I genuinely enjoy doing. And there aren't many things that I enjoy, but I will tell you, making this podcast for you is definitely one of them, as is reading about American history and heroes of American history like George Washington. Washington was the standard bearer for all future presidents. Everything from his treatment of the office to the number of terms that the man served. And my friends at American Pride Roasters Coffee, when they made a coffee named after him, they wanted to make sure that it represented the best qualities of George Washington. It was the first APR coffee that they offered, so it had to set the precedent for future coffees. In fact, when the founder of APR Coffee, Dave Matthews, started brewing, he brewed this blend in an air pop popcorn popper. How awesome is that? And then he just offered it as a gift. This was just for the fun of it, for some friends of his. Next thing you know, they suggested that he started selling it, and the rest is history. So get over to APRCoffee.com today. Try this George Washington blend. I love it. I have no doubt that you will too. And when you're over there at APRCoffee.com, use offer code ATM at checkout. Stands for at the mic. ATM will get you 10% off of your order. APRCoffee.com. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. In this episode of At The Mic, I sat down for a chat with a guy I've known for over two decades. His name is Ian Punnett. He's done it all in the radio business, from rock and roll disc jockey to political talk host. These days, you can hear him on the popular overnight show, Coast to Coast AM, where he discusses aliens, government conspiracies, all sorts of paranormal stuff. I'm telling you, Ian Punnett can talk about anything. He and I worked together in Atlanta during my early days of radio. We've stayed in touch ever since. He's a great friend. And, and things you're going to hear about in my conversation with him include a surefire way to defeat any bully. All right? He talks about his out-of-body experiences, how he ended up with a tattoo of a football team's logo on his backside. It's a team that he doesn't even root for. <laughs> Without further delay, let's get the conversation started with my buddy, Ian Punnett. Can I say that you're a giant in the radio business? No. It is Ian Punnett. <laughs> Everybody, he is. I'm not uh, even giant in my house. That's so not. <laughs> okay. I'm not giant anywhere. All right. Well, I, I appreciate you making time. Uh, if you've oh, yeah. heard this voice before, it's quite possible that you've heard him on Coast to Coast AM, the most popular overnight uh, radio show in the land. Uh, he has done radio um, nationally and locally. He and I worked together back in Atlanta, Georgia, back in the late yep. '90s. And yep. uh, that was a good few years. Uh, I enjoyed working with you there. Yeah, you went time. on to Divinity School from there and left me in your dust. But no, 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 uh, no. they were closing down the show. Remember, because they were taking us off the air. We were on a small little network, and they were replacing us with. I was going to say Phil Hendry, but yeah, it was Phil I Hendry. Thought, well, okay, but there was a time when. Okay, nope. I, my memory is Phil Hendry. And they were they gave us like a 90 day or 120 days out when they were going to start adding Phil Hendry at night on WGST in Atlanta. So they gave us all the time in the world to find another radio gig. I went I took that opportunity because I had a pretty decent severance. I took that opportunity to um, finish up at Columbia Theological Seminary. You went from there to was it Houston? It was, yeah. So yeah. I followed our boss, Ken Charles, to Houston. Yeah. And uh, that's actually where I ended up working with Pat Gray, who I am there the producer go. of today. So to this day. It's a crazy small radio world. Or it is. You're like a magnet. You You're yeah. collecting hosts all across the country. That's right. That's right. Okay. So you, a very unique story, uh, if we go to the very beginning of your birth, you were born inside your house. On the floor in my parents' house in Wilmette, Illinois, the <laughs> hometown of Bill Murray oh. and dozens of other celebrities. Yes. So that's suburban Chicago, correct? Right. 
Yeah. Okay. So you grew up then in Chicago? Nope. I grew up in the town next door. So I was there till I was about three or four. Then we moved to Winnetka, Illinois, which is um, just the same town, just a little bit further north. And that I grew up about, I grew up a few blocks from the Home Alone house. Oh, nice. Later popularized in the John Hughes movies. And like all of those John Hughes movies were all shot in my backyard. How cool is that? Okay. When I'm watching Ferris Bueller's Day Off, it's like a slideshow <laughs> of my youth. It's very strange. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. So you grew up in Northern Illinois. Yep. How long till you got out? I mean, had you, did you think you were going to be there forever or nope. was the plan nope. like, I got to get out of here? No, I had no, I I had no sense of like, I, this was too small a burg for me, man, or anything like that, <laughs> nor did I have any particular compulsion to work in Chicago either. I just liked the process. So I was going to college in the daytime, working radio at night. And then I started to figure out that radio was more than just a way to pay for college. Um, radio became something that I really enjoyed getting better at. Okay. And that's when I, I'd, even when I later on, when I finished school at the University of Illinois, um, I I just stayed with radio. And I stayed with the entertainment side of radio as opposed to the news side. So I, at the age of eight, that I've discussed in the past on, on this podcast, yeah. You know, I knew I wanted to be in radio. I didn't know exactly right. what, probably sports, but I, I just knew I wanted to be associated with radio. It sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, with you, that love came later, correct? So so you just but, wanted but to do I it for fun? I was in the media. I knew it was okay. going to be media. I used to sit, when I was eight, I used to sneak out of bed and I would go to the foot of my stairs and I would listen to my parents watching The Tonight Show. Uh-huh. And I made an association with the fact that some people got paid to sit around and talk. And I thought, <laughs> okay, that's the career for me. Uh-huh. And and I, so even though like I went through the, I want to be a policeman or I want to be like, I'd had a little bit of that like any other kid. Mm-hmm. The When I was in first grade, they asked me to draw a, a picture a, with crayons of what we thought we would do for a living. So it must not have been first grade because I couldn't have drawn that well. So it must have been third grade. So by third grade, I drew an image of me standing on stage in a tuxedo holding a microphone. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's good. So yeah. do you still have that picture? Because I I'm wish sure I did. It's worth something. I, I'm I'm sure my parents treasured it, and I'll find <laughs> it someday. Right. No, not my parents. So I was the third one. So by the time I came <laughs> along. I, it never worked like that when you're the third. So you how know. many siblings do you have then? Two older brothers. And my oldest brother was a super genius. Okay. Um, so all of my parents got all of their validation. Both of my parents got their validation from my <laughs> oldest brother. And by that point, they're like, yeah, whatever you want to do. Pirate, you know, no <laughs> prostitute, whatever. Yeah, you just be, be happy. That almost sounds like our youngest, where we're just like- <laughs> See? Eh, whatever. It's like yeah. by the time you come along, it's like I'm not even checking to see if they're breathing in the crib. You know, it's like. Right. Whatever. Yeah. I'm sure he's fine. I'm sure he's fine. <laughs> that first one you're putting like you're right. tying like bells to their big toes to make sure they didn't die in the night and whatever. <laughs> and the the for the youngest one, it was like, now put that gun down. But I said. <laughs> Wait, is it unloaded? Okay, that you can play with that, but you know, and so that <laughs> third—that's the reason why radio is overrepresented by third children. Huh? Yeah. Wow. In birth order, in birth order studies, the youngest children are generally referred to as the family mascot, and they are free to do and be, and the party never really starts until they get there, and all of that, and that's how a lot of kids uh, who are third children end up in entertainment. Wow, that is fascinating. Seriously. Isn't it true though? That is that's really intriguing. Okay, so how was your childhood? And what I'm specifically getting at is one particular story that I've heard you tell that I absolutely love and it's the time you got into a fight. Uh, okay. I mean, this is how you get Tell the out. story as okay. you remember me telling okay. it. Okay, so here's what I remember. Uh, okay. Cuz I wish I had this lesson you know, before I was an adult. 
Right. Okay. So I guess uh, a bully in school, the way yep. I recall it. Um, Murray Harwich. Yep. Okay. And so everyone's surrounding you and him and, you know, probably shouting fight, fight. Uh, nope. Anyway. Nope. Okay. Well, well, he was a private bully. Oh, he didn't he do it was, for the glory? No, he was he was more insidious than that. I'm not saying there wasn't a time, but if he had been more public, I it wasn't like I was friendless in the class. Uh-huh. So I would have had some other friends that might have stood up for me. But I had switched to a new school in fifth grade. Okay. And um, Murray just decided because I had long hair and I was new that I was going to be, I, w- I needed to be hazed. Oh. And so, yeah, he so he started really coming at me in all these little weird ways, trying to get me to punch him. That's all he wanted. He wanted me to fight him and I would not do it. I refused <laughs> to do it. How old were you? Fifth grade, so what did it make you, 11 or something? All right. And um, I had, or 10 or 11, and I had, my oldest brother had really been into watching Kung Fu, right? Mm -hmm. Who was always, Kane always resisted, you know, the physical altercation until he was pushed to a point where he was saving somebody else. And he always turned the other cheek if it were him and... My brother was really into nonviolence and Gandhi and Martin Luther King and all that. And so I just refused to give Murray the satisfaction. And that meant literally like almost my entire fifth grade of being tormented by him. Okay. So what I recall is you telling Murray that you guys could get into a fight, but that he would end up walking away without an eye. Okay. Now this comes later. Oh, okay. But yes. Yeah. But no, that's fine. So what I what I learned later about not fighting uh-huh. was that it was all about psychology. Mm-hmm. And so that to which you refer was when I had there was another bully. Oh no. And that kid was determined to engage me too, and I wouldn't do it. And I finally said to him, and I may have said this to Murray too. I don't, I just don't remember the circumstances that I told the story, but it was something I I got accustomed to saying whenever I was put in this position, which is uh, just, I'm fine. Let's go. If we're going to have at it, you're going to win. I'm smaller. You're stronger. (laughs) I just want you right now to tell me which one of your eyes do you want to go through the rest of your life without? That's what the line is. (laughs) Because I'm going to lose and you're going to, you're going to kick the living crap out of me. But before I go down, Mm -hmm. I will be holding one of your eyeballs in my hand. (laughs) So is it left or is it right? And that worked, right? Every, every time it worked. (laughs) And I, I probably only had to do it like three times in my life. But I mean, it's like when you're in that age where, People are doing the whole mm-hmm. trying to test you and and or take you down a peg. And and after after that fifth grade at that school, I became kind of a popular kid and I had mm-hmm. all the friends. I did. And so then it was a matter of like neighborhood kids or other people deciding we'll show this kid with long hair. We'll, you know, whatever. And they were just jealous because they at that time it was 1971 and they were still being forced to wear these buzz cuts and i looked like i was in the beatles and they hated that they were jealous and Uh i'm glad i never had to push it to the test but (laughs) i i would have uh i would have would have gone for the eye okay you um ended up you said going to college where did you go to school two undergrad schools lake forest college and the university of illinois i matriculated at uh at LFC, and then I graduated later from uh, University of Illinois. And so you root for the Fighting Illini then? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's not much to root for except in basketball season. Right, so, right. But, yeah. but what, I'm, what I'm getting at is I recall another story where later on in your life, you were a DJ and yep. you made an on-air bet. Uh, I guess Illinois was facing Tennessee in a bowl no. game. No? No, this Unfortunately, I was much older and I knew much better. I was the bet was between when I was in Nashville at 103 KDF (laughs) and the bet was between Vandy and UT. What are you doing, man? Wait a second. Vandy had just come off a great year and the coach that year who later went on to win like coach of the year. 
I mean, they this was their year. Like the Commodores had a chance to beat the Vols that year mm. and they didn't. And I made a bet with a guy who had a little bit of the whole big orange swagger on the air. And I was just gambling that it would be worth it if he had to have a go doors tattoo on his butt for the rest of his life. Oh, no. Unfortunately, um, even though the game was at home and Vandy <laughs> had a chance, I think the final score, I'd have to check my butt because I'd have to look in the mirror, but I, the score's on there. Oh, no. I think they lost 63 to nothing. Oh, no. To the Vols that year. So that's why the, the tattoo on my butt says, Go Vols, 63 to nothing. Oh, Ian. Oh, my god. So if goodness. I'm ever missing... Right. Oh, no. If I remember, if they find some partially decomposed corpse to say, what's the score on his ass? <laughs> yep, that's him. That's funny. This one says 24 to 12. Oh, no, it's a not, different guy. Not him. Different guy, different bet. <laughs> okay, so... Take us through your career and all the places that you've been. You mentioned Nashville. After college, I mean, uh, I know I know the story is like with anybody in radio. It's literally a geographical tour of the nation. So right. tell us all the fun places. I just kept that you've going been. to where they were going to keep paying me more. Uh huh. And then, yeah. then when I got married, my wife had interests in moving too. She's much more of a vagabond than I am, and so I was even. I I would have been happy to settle down in some of these places, but she's a gypsy. So I mean, that was it. It's just radio back then, particularly, wasn't done over the internet. They weren't doing clusters, mm -hmm. so that you worked at five stations at once, and there was stations were much more proprietary about their talent, and we all had these you know, significant contracts and you would commit to a market for three years. And then if you did well, you were getting calls because people are always looking for that next person to bring up. Right. And, and I was doing morning radio uh, pretty early on and I had kind of an act that was being well received. And so, you know, I, I went from doing radio on the North Shore of Chicago, like Waukegan, Illinois, and then uh, Champaign-Urbana at University of Illinois. Then from there, went to the East Coast, went to uh, the Jersey Shore, um, to a, a, what's called the Monmouth Ocean County market. It's sort of halfway between New York and Philadelphia. Um, that's a big money market. That I did well there. And then went from there to the Quad Cities because I liked the work they were doing there in the Quad Cities. And from the Quad Cities to to Nashville, from Nashville to Chicago, from Chicago to Atlanta, and then Atlanta to the Twin Cities. And it was end, end up being the Twin Cities that I ended up staying for uh, yeah. like a whole decade. It was a great, it was, it was fun. We always and, had fun. And today, folks can find you as a, what's your title at K-State University, Kansas State? I'm a professor of practice and the faculty advisor and chief operator for Wildcat 91.9, alternative <laughs> rock and hip hop station. Yeah, so how can people find that station? Uh, is there is there like an app or something? There that is you guys an app. Have? Wildcat 91.9, the app. I think it's only for iPhone. Um, and then, but online at wildcat919.com. And that online listening button is easy. It's right there. And we get um, a lot of our listening comes from outside of this market, which is the Manhattan, Kansas area, it's sort of north and east in the state. Um, we're up in what's called the Flint Hills, closer to Nebraska and uh, your old haunt. And then um, we do we do well. It's a great it's a great little station and the, the kids are really into it. So uh, you're not going to do this without me putting you on the spot. But you are constantly learning. You are yep. constantly taking yep. classes and earning degrees. Yep. So please tell me all of the degrees you have because <laughs> it's, it's, it's fascinating. No, no, it was not that. Well, here's I was a double major undergrad, English literature and expository rhetoric. Okay. But it's one degree. I mean, it's a Bachelor of Arts, but, um, I, it, but it, it was a double major. And then I have a Master's of Divinity. I've got two rotations as a hospital chaplain intern, which is part of um, a separate educational program that's offered around the country to get credits for um, pastoral care. Uh, then I also have a uh, then I have a PhD in um, journalism and mass communications from Arizona State University. Anything past a bachelor's, <laughs> I'm going to be very impressed with. But it just seems like every time we talk, you right. know, that you're you're going to school for something. 
Well, but that's, you know, and the thing is, too, I, I did take some assorted courses along the way, but not toward a degree. So I, I would pick something up. I'd get a certificate for something here or there, um, but not in terms of an actual degree. But certificates are interesting. You, you should look into those more. They're not that hard, but you get a lot of bang for your buck, I think. You learn okay. something very specialized. This is one of those things be, that I go, okay, I might look into that. And, and then you never will. No, no, not at all. <laughs> right. Uh, so when you were in Minnesota, that's where you ended up getting your um, Master's of Divinity. No, I got my Master's of Divinity in Atlanta when we were working together. Although when I left for the job in the Twin Cities, I still had about eight credits left, mm-hmm. uh, but they were all electives. And so I got them at Luther Seminary, which okay. is um, there in uh, St. Paul. And I got those credits there, but they, they were bussed back to Atlanta. So I graduated with a Master's of Divinity from Columbia Theological Seminary, having spent some time at Luther. So what was your plan after you had that degree? What did you want to do originally with it? I held out the possibility that I might do parish ministry, but it was never a big interest of mine. I always wanted to be pro bono. I always wanted to work (laughs) in a non-stipendiary kind of role. So I saw myself as more of a utility player than somebody that was going to be making a jump every seven years from a church to another church. I liked the idea then in the end of being ordained in the Episcopal Church in the diaconate. So I'm a member of the Sacred Order of the uh, diaconate. uh, And that's what I'm ordained to, which is a national organization. And therefore, I can serve in a diaconal role in any anywhere I go. And I don't, I'm not dependent on being assigned a church. Okay. So you've been in radio, seriously, nonstop this entire time while while you've been learning and, and doing the divinity thing. And a lot Um, of TV too along the way. I just don't talk about it as much. Yeah, so, well, now's your chance. (laughs) I know I've seen you on CNN before. Right, I I did a lot of CNN when I was there. I was a regular panelist, um, and I handled a lot of moral and ethical issues Uh that would come up. And I really liked the people there quite a bit. But again, I I didn't want to become a talking head. I didn't want to do the think tank thing. I I wasn't interested in that. I like doing radio uh, in a more traditional talk radio sense. I just don't like talking about all the dumb politics stuff. And I hate Mm -hmm. all the talk show gimmicks. They're so boring. You know, (laughs) it's all very predictable to me. Predictable, yeah. So... Where did Coast to Coast, uh, Coast to Coast AM, it's yeah. the overnight show, it talked to been us. Doing it ab- for 21 years. 21 yeah. years I've been doing. I started that because we were working for, you and I both were working for the company at the time that, that had bought the premier radio networks that had Art Bell, Coast to Coast. And Art at the time had his friends mostly fill in on nights when he wasn't working. And some of them were like, from the ham radio club, right? You know, they were, you know, I mean, it seems so quaint. Think about it. It wasn't that they were terrible, but they, they didn't meet what the company thought was a professional standard. There was a certain charm to them. I'm not dissing them, but it, the company approached me because as you know, cause this is when we were working together, I was not interested in becoming the next table pounding conservative. Mm -hmm. I was not interested in spending my life talking about politics on the air. So I, I approached things differently. And because I had, I was working already on a graduate degree. Honestly, they thought I might have the chops to handle some of these topics because coast to coast, you know, Art Bell established a very brainy little show. He was dealing in physics. He was dealing in alternative history and uh, alternative religion and spirituality, as well as the UFO and the cryptozoological stuff. And they were just looking for somebody who could handle that and not turn it into, you know, what's wrong with Bill Clinton, you know, again, for the billionth <laughs> time. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm your man. And so I just started doing it. And apparently the producers liked it. And and the and Art Bell didn't hate it enough to stop it. I don't know if he was in. <laughs> I don't know if he liked me that much at the beginning. I think he he grew to like me or appreciate me later on. I think he knew I was kind of putting his friends out of work. He didn't care for that, but I don't think he had that much power. So it was really going to be something that the producers were deciding more than Art. Okay, well, people can still catch you doing that. Is there yeah. a rhyme or reason to your schedule, or how how do people yeah. know when it's going to be you? 
or is it just random? I'm times? kind of a bench player, yeah. So mm-hmm. it, it works out. They they offer me some dates, and I take the ones uh-huh. that they offer by and large. Um, I don't turn them down very often. Because correct me if I'm wrong, a, a lot of the issue with your time on the radio, and again, I may be totally in left field on this, but you suffer from tinnitus. Right. Which is, the way you've described it to me, just sounds like hell on earth. Yeah. Honestly. Uh, It's not fun. So is that from years of just having the headphones cranked up during radio shows or rock? Yeah. Well, they'll never really know. So like some people, you have like a genetic predisposition. Other people can wear headphones their whole life and sit around and, you know, crank tunes and suffer no nerve damage. Other people can suffer nerve damage because of one incident. Um, So there's not a particular way of getting tinnitus, but when you get it, boy, you know it. You just know it. Explain to us what you experienced then. It's a neurological condition that comes from uh, dead uh, cells in your ear. So these are these are cells that are built around the auditory nerves. And when you develop tinnitus, what it is, it's the brain trying to reach out to these nerve cells that are not responding. So the brain makes up a noise. And that's why tinnitus sufferers have a there's there's a certain consistency but they're not everybody has here's the same thing so some people hear a very low rumble almost like a gurgle um i have a, a very high pitched tinnitus that's closer to uh like a bandsaw on metal um and it goes on 24 7 right it's, now oh right now please oh yeah well, I, this is actually particularly about because I'm thinking about it. So mm-hmm. when I when as soon as I think about it, I hear it louder. Yeah. The trick of the treatment of tinnitus is training your brain away from hearing it. It's called tinnitus retraining therapy or TRT. And that's very effective. So now I can go, you know, 10, 15 hours. I can go a whole day without really being affected by it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes when I put my head down on the pillow at night, it really comes roaring back. But it's the loudest noise I always hear. And wow. I, I could be in a traffic jam and I'll, I'll hear the tonight is louder than anything oh boy so we will change the topic there so you can think yeah. about something else <laughs> it's about um, right. i, I want to kind of go back to coast to coast am you have told me before uh, it's a very coast to coast am you know kind of experience can you will you tell us about your own out-of-body experience oh yeah interesting i was just talking about this the other day with my wife um so I, I did have I frequently what's called an out-of-body experience. It I don't know that in my case, I, I didn't reach what some people refer to as astral projection, uh-huh. where, you know, they, they're sitting in a chair and next thing you know, they're in Cleveland, you know, or they're they're getting a hoagie somewhere. <laughs> Long <laughs> the one, or something. The one I, I remember you telling me was the movie theater one. Yeah. That's the one I recall. Right. And this is a very, uh, you remember these stories well. So this is a, this is, I, this used to happen all the time. I called it ghosting. That was the word I had for it. And I developed it as a kid. I mean, as a kid, it used to happen all the time. I'd be sitting on my floor playing with my GI Joes or something, and the next thing I know, I had this kind of weird, sort of swirly feeling, and I was looking at myself on the floor playing with my GI Joes. Wow. It's very strange, but in yeah. this case, I remember one of the last times I had it, and that's when I was walking with my friend uh, Spike, and we were in high school. We drove down to see some really bad R-rated movie (laughs) in Evanston. I I was trying to remember the name. It was a double feature. I kind of remember it was like... like the the town the town that knew fear or something I can't remember but they're famous like R rated horror movies one of them had Don Wells in it that's what I remember okay. the, and uh, but anyway we were going to see these uh, these uh, cheap uh, kind of I guess they were early slasher movies and we were walking underneath the movie marquee and it was so bright right it's just ten million bright little bulbs we were coming from a dark cool walk from the car walked underneath the that bright flashing 
light underneath the movie marquee and I it was immediate and this is actually what used to often be a trigger for it was these sort of these jarring experiences something and and that was one of those where I just I, I suddenly I remember just sort of feeling myself being pulled up almost as though I were sitting on my own shoulders as we were walking along and everything around me was muffled like people talking through water and I was sort of looking around at just below the height of the light bulbs. And I was looking down at the top of my head and I was looking down at the other people who were lining up to get tickets. And I came out of it because my friend had been trying to get me to respond to something he said. And he finally punched me in the arm and it was just like right there. It was over. And he's like, I've been talking to you. Where have you been? And I was like, I can't even begin to explain it to you. Do you have any idea how long that lasted for you? I I would say 10, 15 seconds. My mother, when I mentioned it to my mother later on, which is funny because I'd never really talked about it with her. But sometime later on, we were watching something came up on TV. And I said, uh, I said, I don't know, we were watching Unsolved Mysteries with, you know, Leonard Nimoy or something in the kitchen. And I said, I I used to have those. And my mother shocked me when she said, oh, I did too. And she said, uh, they stopped when I was, uh, when I became a teenager. And I said, it's pretty much my story too. And then I looked it up later on and I found out that's really the common thing is they they go away when you kind of when you reach puberty. Um, but when you're a kid, a lot of people experience that that separation, that sort of soul separation. Um, and they, they have no context for it, no words to describe it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I, I, I want to experience something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was cool. You know? <laughs> it was cool. And it's the kind of thing that was very informative to me when I started doing Coast to Coast, because I could when people were telling me about weird stuff that happened to them, I'm like, yep, that's okay, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt because I know if I told my stories, a lot of people would look at me like I was crazy. So, Is is that the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you, the out-of-body stuff? No, probably the UFO. uh, I saw a a UFO formation over Lake Michigan. Okay, I do not know this at all. It's a long story. We don't have that much time. But, you know, it's just one of those things where you never forget it. And it's like I I phoned it in afterward. There was three, a sighting of three. And I phoned it in to um, the UFO Center, which at the time was still active at uh, Northwestern University. J. Allen Hynek was still a professor there um, who later becomes, you know, famous for Close Encounters and um, the uh, uh, that there was a Netflix series, I think. That was built around him. The UF uh, Blue Project Blue Book had a, mm-hmm. a, a JL and Heineck character, and um, so I, I mean, I phoned it in. I filled out my report, and they came back to me later on and said absolutely nothing reported from any government agency, any of the local military. Nothing would explain what you saw. And I thought, Mocha, there you go. Yeah. So when people talk about UFOs, I'm not, I'm still not convinced that sincerely everybody's from Mars, or but I know what I saw, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it yeah. was unidentified. It was flying, and it was something. So it wow. may have been an, a UFS, uh, unidentified flying something, but it was something. <laughs> I'll okay. never forget it. Very good. So obviously you're very accomplished in your radio and even television career. And now as a professor, also in the realm of religion. So your wife, however, is also very yeah, accomplished in, in some stuff that she is involved with. In, yeah. And along the way, some big names that she's been very helpful in right. uh, making famous. Tell us some stuff about Marjorie. Yeah. You know, if we were ever once a power couple, we're not anymore because she's got all the power. Um, <laughs> coming up on 36 years of marriage. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, thanks. And she's she's more of a multimedia star in many ways than I ever could be. She is a um, she just won her third Emmy. Um, a local Emmy for the Southwest region, but third Emmy, you know, shut my mouth. Uh, she <laughs> nominated 15 times, won three of them. Uh, that's, you know, those are, those are goddess numbers. She works mostly in food television, food and, and entertainment television. Prior to that, she worked for CNN. After that, she worked for Oprah and she worked in the special projects division for Oprah Winfrey. So she's had some cool runs at things. And then we did it. We co-hosted the morning show together in yeah. uh, and, and now her podcast, Best to the Nest, uh, is, is coming up on its 200th episode. And right. she's frequently in the top 20 in different categories around the world. Um, right. So her podcast is... Uh, 
doing okay. She does it uh, twice a week. And for people who want to catch it, it's podcast one is the platform for that. Or they can just Google it and they go to the right to the website, best to the nest. And it's a it's an entertaining podcast with a, a high appeal to women. It's, it's a cool show. Yeah. Yeah. And you talked about doing that show with her. You guys had a setup at your house in Minnesota, correct? Right. We've had, we've been lucky to have studios almost every place we live. So we had one for a long time in Atlanta. Um, and then that was for when I was still doing radio work in other markets other than Atlanta. So I was doing a morning show for a while in Nashville before I go to seminary, before I would come over and work with you in the evening, I was knocking out a morning show, um, which was fun. Yeah. And then we had a really nice studio in uh, St. Paul uh, and now it, don't have a studio, but kind of don't need to. The tech has evolved to the point where having a dedicated room like that, meh, it's, I mean, it's nice to have, but you can get the sound equivalent of a decent home studio just by broadcasting from a closet with a good microphone. And Seriously. A, yeah. I, I drove up from Texas up to Kansas to see yes, you, you about, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And right. I was stunned at your setup there where you do coast to coast. It was so cool because it's yep. such a natural setting. You're not in a, like you said, you're not in like a, a broom nope. closet or a soundproof nope. booth or something like that. You literally sit at your desk in the middle of your living room with a microphone on the desk that's surrounded, you know, just uh, by on three sides, I think it was, by some sort of like uh, sound deadening. Uh, I have a little bit of a, like a parabolic um, desk baffle. But it's not very big. It's very like, it, maybe it's yeah. a foot tall on each side. Right. And I only use it at night because I'm up on a hill and I pick up the audio from the freight trains at the which are about a mile away, but the sound <laughs> comes up the hill really pretty hot. <laughs> so at times when I hear the train coming, I lean in behind this foam and it blocks that out. But for the rest of the time, I'm li like I'm doing right now. I am sitting in a big purple easy chair behind <laughs> a desk talking on a mic. That yep. is awesome. So you and Margie have two grown sons. Right. Tell us a little bit about those guys. 29 and 27. Oldest one is the, the chief of staff for a startup company in Chicago. He works directly with the CEO. The company is doing very well. Mm -hmm. uh, they monetize the products which had for too long either had to be written off for a tax loss or dumped in a landfill. So they they have a product. It's a software product plus kind of a holistic approach to increase sustainability within every company. And with that sustainability comes profitability because nothing goes to waste. So anything the company buys, there's an end use that's already been designated for that product before it even comes in the door. So it's a system. They developed it. It works really well. It's a network work and they're in their third year. And uh, this will probably be their biggest year of profitability. It's called Reaply. They work with the Pentagon. They work with the city of Chicago. They work with universities. They have a couple of projects they're talking about right now with Google and some other people, big companies that have a lot of office furniture and a lot of other things that it's too easy. They end up in a big warehouse somewhere, <laughs> just piles of stuff. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's Reaply. That's our old, oldest son. And then our my younger son, um, they both have master's degrees. The younger son has one in uh, sociology. And he's spending a year as an AmeriCorps volunteer in Minnesota, which was more of a coincidence than anything else. But he ended yeah. up back in Minnesota and he works with a food program that brings uh, that caters to nutritious meals for seniors. And he's doing that for one year as a VISTA volunteer. And then he will be coming to K-State where he, uh, we assume where he'll be getting his uh, starting his PhD in psychology and becoming a therapist. How great is that? Yeah. So will he be living with you guys? Because nope. I, I, okay, well, see, that's too bad because they won't be staying in the Keith Malinak room. If that's, that's what, what you I was going to say. Yeah. I got to describe this room. The guest <laughs> room in your house is absolutely <laughs> spectacular because it's like Batman. It's behind a hidden yes. wall of books. Yeah. I built a hidden bedroom, <laughs> which that I just is... completely love. 
It, it is the coolest uh, setup. It's ever quiet too. Like it, like it's really it's tomb like back there. Yeah. And uh, but it's a, a full bookcase in front. And uh, no, he you know he's twenty seven and and sure. uh, he likes living alone. But he also likes living nearby, which is nice when your kids don't hate you. So <laughs> yeah, he uh, I think he wants to to live within shouting distance or or dinner distance or whatever. <laughs> so. Well, and that's a good segue because yeah. you do a lot of cooking I you're do. excellent in the kitchen uh how did you get into that have you always but been so is he my so my younger son is a great cook huh. and he's a very dedicated chef which is really interesting he does some he cooks differently than i do and he he follows different food styles than i do so it's always fun actually to have him nearby because he's one of the few people i would trust in my kitchen <laughs> is that pretty much your biggest hobby then like when you yeah, ever i think uh-huh. so like yeah. I knocked out a like, I, I knocked out a beef stroganoff this morning for Marjorie, uh, so okay. she could have it for lunch. I just was like, uh, I'm gonna make a stroganoff because I knew I had some leftover steak from the other night, and so I chopped that up. And I will say, well. it is a great experience uh, being a guest at your place and having <laughs> you cook these extravagant meals. And acting like it's no big deal whatsoever. Anyhow. But it is no big deal. It's like, I, I love that. That's just, that's my sandbox. You know, yes. when I can't, if I got writer's block or something, I come up and cook something. And then I usually, if I, if I don't, if I'm not going to eat it, I still cook it and I drop it off for neighbors or something and then go back to work. <laughs> but it feels good. I like it. It's so fun. you mentioned writer's block. You are also a very accomplished writer and I'm Thank talking you. about in so many different genres. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've written historical stuff. Let's, you know yep. what? Let, let me just. Why don't you please tell us oh, the, the, the? I know, right? Because you've done kids' books, you've done historical, yeah, two you've chil- done religion, right? Two children's books. I've written a total of e- I think I've written and or been the primary editor of eleven books now. Mm, my so goodness. I two children's books, which we did for fundraisers. Tell us the names of those. Um. That would be Dizzy the Mutt with the Propeller Butt and Jackula the Vampire Dog. Jackula's still alive. He's sleeping right over about eight from a... How's from Jack doing? He, he's, he's, he's a great dog. He's a good old dog. He doesn't do much, but he's a great old dog. Um, and uh, uh, then I wrote a couple of different... I, I write a, mostly on... I like the intersections of things. I find that sort of become a theme if I had to look back on my books. Um, So How to Pray When You're Pissed at God was my Mm -hmm. first big book. That was for Random House, I think. And then um, I... Uh, I the new book is called um, How Millennials Can Get Us Out of the Mess We're In. Mm. Um, and that's a book about leadership, which I co-wrote with a Israeli-born rabbi and with a Pakistani-born Muslim scholar. We co-authored wow. that. Um, and it's really a re-examination of the Moses narrative from both the Bible and the Quran. They're very close. The Bible and the Quran's version are very close. And um, so we took a, we, it's the subtitle for that is leadership lessons uh, from the life of Moses. And we, we really look at what, what millennials can learn from Moses um, because so much, so many millennials are not big churchgoers, Mm -hmm. uh, but they're what we call the bookstore faithful. So they like to, they like to know the subject and they like to read about the subject, but they just don't necessarily want to get up on Sunday morning and, you know, go sing or pretend they're singing. Um, and uh, <laughs> most people at church. Then I wrote a book called uh, Moving Sounds. I didn't write this one. I wrote a chapter in it and then I repaired a couple of chapters in it. And, I, and then I co-edited it, um, Moving Sounds, which is a book about the history of the intersection between radio and cars. So it's about the evolution of car radio and how the automobile changed radio programming and how radios changed the way cars were built and how we live in our cars. So I, I did that one and I don't know. There's a couple other ones. I, I wrote. I write a lot of chapters for other people's books. Oh, okay. so that I'm, I'm counting those in there too because um, one book I have two chapters in about outdoor festivals as religion. Um, huh. So yeah. <laughs> like Burning Man, uh-huh. um, yeah, right, Coachella, you know, as religion, and they, they become they they become kind of de facto religions. That's a good um, point. Yeah, yeah, and I and then I also wrote about uh, Amish and technology. That was kind of cool. Hmm. I don't know. There's a bunch of 
bunch of crap on Amazon. People go buy it. So. <laughs> okay. Oh, and then true crime. I wrote so yep. like my my book. I, I I was that was my PhD was in studying true crime. So that my eventually my dissertation got published as a book called Toward a Theory of True Crime, which was the first ever, I'm very proud of this, the first ever explanation of what true crime really is. Like how does it, both its form and its function. And then I wrote a true crime book about a murder that happened in my family. In your family, Um, yeah. Yeah, called, uh, yeah. What was it called again? It's called uh, Black Knight for the Bluegrass Bell. I had to look at the poster next to my desk to get the title right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you're obviously a prolific writer, do you also enjoy reading? I do, but I just don't have much time. I was talking right. to a friend. I mean, I have to read a lot for work. So work becomes very, you know, reading becomes kind of functional. I don't do a lot of pleasure reading. Um, my, I was just talking to a friend who said that uh, every night before they go to bed, they read two or three pages of a, of a book he was telling me about. And he said, what about you? I said, every night before I go to bed, I write two or three pages of a book. Uh, and that's about it. That's a really big difference. And I, I, I'm under contract right now for two new books, one on the future of journalism. Um, what will journalism look like in 50 years? And then, uh, and then I had this other a, a podcast series I was working on for somebody. Oh, cool! I look forward to that. Do you have a sneak peek at fifty years from now? Is 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 proper grammar and punctuation going to come back in style, or is that gone for good? Uh, well, it, it can't go because really, proper punctuation and grammar is. It, I it, see so much on. Oh, I'll get a, I'll get a news alert on my phone. Sure. I'll read the story and and there'll be yeah. you know two or three errors in it. And I realize they're in a hurry, but my gosh, put a period. Use the proper syntax. Oh, I, I get I with you hundred percent. Usually that is that speaks to time though, and that this has become a new factor over the last 20, 25 years is right. people rush something out so fast that they don't have time to vet it or edit it and they should and but generally speaking when we're talking about journalism we'll always depend on some level of punctuation and grammar because that's how we decide what the codes are and the associated press style for example was really a way to codify writing so that up until that point writing was very regional spelling was kind of regional in the united states and in order to send information from one part of the country to the other everybody had to agree on how a word was spelled and how it was abbreviated and then how mm. sentences got punctuated or it took forever and so that that's really why uh, ap style and chicago style and you know mls and some of these other popular style. They all got started because we needed to codify the language. What does English really look like? English is a fairly new language in a lot of ways. And so you you don't have to go back very far and you don't have to go any further than England to see that they use punctuation differently in England than we use it here. That's... First of all, I didn't realize that that's how styles came to be, but I never thought of English as being that young of a language. But yeah, I guess you're... Well, if you think about it, like right now, even in England, um, they put anything that's a quotation... You close the quote and then you put the punctuation after the closed quote, except for question marks, really, in the United States. In American English, it's the punctuation and then the closed quote. So why the two different versions? Well, you know, one made sense for them. The other makes sense for us. Why the different spellings? Well, one makes sense for them. You know, And so when you look at Wiki, which is an interesting situation, Wiki uses what we call international English, not American English. So their punctuation is different hmm. and it gets lived out differently in terms of like um, the use of semicolons, which I just find really annoying how people misuse <laughs> semicolons. Uh, but we we do them differently in the United yeah. States. What is it with other. the British enjoying the letter U too much and like color uh, <laughs> and stuff Well, like they started that. it. They get to keep it all they want. Oh, you oh, know? Oh, We're yeah, the one okay. who dropped it. So that's they didn't a, add it. A, we dropped uh, it. Fair <laughs> point. Fair point. Okay. I know you're a big music geek. Yep. Um, who are some of your go-to bands that, that you have to have with you if you're on a deserted island or something? Yeah, the, the, the famous Desert Island Discs. I wrote a review. <laughs> I was published, right? Actually, I got published writing a, an article about that famous British show called Desert Island Discs. Uh, that's been around. This is the longest continuously running radio feature in in England is Desert Island Discs. How cool. Okay. Yeah, I think it's kind of cool. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I still, I, the same patterns we had when we worked together, um, a, a nice mix. I think I like alternative. I like hip hop. I don't always like 
the I, I can there's certain hip hop subgenres I don't go into, um, but I like kind of the sad boy uh, hip hop, um, and I like the um, I'm not always crazy about white girl alternative where everything sounds like Lilith Fair, but I do like <laughs> alternative rock as opposed to, uh, and I, and I like the, the genre mixing, you know, the, the generational aspect of people who've been playing with what Beck developed and, you know, to some degree, Jane's addiction and some of the other bands that played around with Primus and other stuff. I kind of like, I like to see where alternative goes, uh, but I still listen to a certain amount of heavy metal. Um, I tend to listen to more classic heavy metal than new metal. Um, and I love opera, <laughs> still love opera. Wow. I, I, I literally had no idea. Has that always uh, been a thing for you? Yeah, always. In fact, uh, yeah, I love opera. I sort of, I got into it when I was in college and, uh, I, uh, I tried to, I was a, an active member of the Minnesota opera company and in, in supporting mm. them. Um, and, in fact, that was one of my last big television productions I was involved with. I was the associate producer and the uh, assistant director for a series of three opera productions, which ended up on PBS oh, cool. uh, when I was in Minnesota. So being in this business, the radio and you know just the media business, you've obviously crossed yep. paths with a lot of celebrities along the line. Yep. Um any particular stories that stand out that that's kind of like your go-to story at a party uh, about anybody famous that, that you would care to share with us? You know, I, it's it's the low level to higher level celebrities. It's just been uh, just another day at the office. And I'm always surprised when I hear from people uh, either through Twitter where people can follow me at Deacon Punnett uh, on Twitter, but I get a kick out of celebrities just like anybody else. And, I think it's fun when they reach out and go, Hey, I'm listening to you. And you're know, like, that is so cool, dude. Cause I'm such a fan. Um, cool. In terms of like, you know, negative stories, I got to, fortunately I have few of those, uh, but of, among those would be um, actress, Martha Plimpton, who I got into like an actual, like on air fight with. Oh, wow. Uh, she was such a crank. Um <laughs> I thought anyway, uh, she probably felt the same about me, but uh, I did not enjoy my last two conversations with Donald Trump okay. at all. Uh -oh. Did I lose you? <laughs> and that is literally where our conversation ended right there. Our connection between Texas and Kansas, uh, it dropped off. And it just seemed to be good a place as any to call it a day. Anyhow, thank you so much for joining me for this edition of At The Mic. And hey, please don't forget to tell your friends about this podcast. Uh, I hope you'll subscribe and rate it wherever possible, such as uh, Apple iTunes. You could also leave me a note or even a voicemail at atthemikeshow.com. Atthemikeshow.com. Lots of fun stuff there, including an archive of all of the shows. And hey, if you feel like donating to the show there, feel free to do that as well. No pressure. Thank you so much again for listening to this edition of At The Mic. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Look for At The Mic Show on Twitter to connect.